This week's Market Watch might be my next vacation destination spot after doing a little bit of research on it. I'm really excited to share that with you guys. And Biden's infrastructure plan will have some big news coming for commercial real estate in this week's wildcard. Welcome back to the Commercial Real Estate Investor Weekly Update. My name is Tyler Cobble, and I am your host here on the show, bringing you the latest news in the world of commercial real estate from around the country uh, and sometimes around the globe, depending on what kind of topic that we are diving into. Let's go ahead and move on to our first segment, the Nashville market. Obviously, Nashville is where I am from, and that is why we are covering it every week here on the show. And the great thing about Nashville is that it never runs out of news articles to share with you all. So this first one coming at us from the Nashville Business Journal exclusive. Amazon pursues first distribution hub in Clarksville, totaling 1.1 million square feet. Amazon has been very bullish on the, the market in Middle Tennessee in general. Um, if you think about how well-positioned Middle Tennessee is throughout the Southeast and really the Northeast as a logistics and distribution hub, it only makes sense. I mean, this is one of the best locations on the East Coast to access as much of the, the country's population as you possibly can within a day's drive. So, of course, having... Uh, excessive amounts of distribution in this part of the country uh, makes all the sense in the world. So it looks like uh, this this distribution hub is going to add, uh, looks like right around a thousand jobs. Um, so it's a 1.1 million square foot facility on the Guthrie Highway in Clarksville. And they're targeting a more than 100 acre piece of farmland close to that intersection uh, that is the gateway for Google's data center and the LG Electronics washing machine factory. So we'll have to talk about Clarksville at some point on this show as well. It's a suburb about 45 minutes north, north, northwest of Nashville, and it is growing rapidly. It's got, as you can see there, it's got Amazon, it's got Google, it's got LG, which is pretty surprising for a small suburb outside of Nashville. Uh, you know, Clarksville's always been a, a solid town, uh, but it's never experienced what's going on now, uh, like what it's seeing in the last 10 years. You know, it's, it's a military town, so it's got a uh, very solid, strong economy, and, it, and they're, they're just chugging along. So it looks like this facility will be a traditional non-sort operation, which is Amazon speak for facilities handling larger, bulkier items such as patio furniture, rugs, or air compressors. Okay. Um, they will employ 1,000 full-time workers, and okay, cool. So let's see talking a little bit about Alston Construction Company, uh, which has a Nashville office that is going to be doing the construction on the project. And, okay, this is pretty neat. So they're going into the overall numbers on Amazon's footprint in the Middle Tennessee market. It looks like uh, this distribution hub, which was codenamed Project Alice, uh, if you're not familiar with why uh, or, or if you're not even familiar at all that they do codename these projects, it's because they are hypersensitive projects, right? They don't want anybody knowing about them before it's actually uh, set in stone. That way announcements don't get made. So they don't say, hey, you know, Amazon's going to be doing a distribution hub in Clarksville. They say Project Alice. So Alice is going to be doing that. Um, it, that way it just keeps everything under wraps. But it looks like it would be a 14% increase to the company's regional portfolio. 
which is almost 8.9 million square feet of space, or will be almost 8.9 million square feet of space once the construction is complete. That's a pretty significant chunk of warehousing uh, just in the Middle Tennessee area. Looks like uh, one of those buildings is a nearly 100-foot-tall facility in Mount Juliet that's set to open up early this summer. Uh, that's approximately 3.6 million square feet of warehouse and office space. That's pretty impressive for Mount Juliet. I don't know how many structures out in Mount Juliet are. So that's that's just east of Nashville, probably 45 minutes, give or take, depending on how, how traffic is. Uh, I... I I don't know how many buildings are 100 feet tall in Mount Juliet. So, that, I mean, it's got to be, I mean, obviously in terms of just square footage alone, it's probably the, one of the biggest out there. Uh, but in terms of height, it's got to be up there as well. Let's see. Company spokeswoman Courtney Johnson Norman said, Amazon is a dynamic business and we are constantly exploring new locations. They're constantly exploring new locations in Nashville, um, in and around Nashville. They, they love this area. They're constantly trying to get, um, new new sites for them to keep building. And, uh, oh, here it's talking a little bit about Corksville. So 45 miles northwest of Nashville, and it touts Google, LG, and Hankook Tire America Corporation among its newer corporate arrivals. Microvast, a company that makes batteries for electric vehicles, announced a $220 million investment earlier this year. Lots of big things coming for Clarksville. Lots of big things. So, Awesome. Uh, well, that, that's a pretty neat story. So this next uh, this next one coming at you also from the Nashville Business Journal, Gray Star Real Estate, which is one of the largest uh, multifamily developers and multifamily holders in the country, plans a 396-unit Madison apartment. That is a behemoth. Love that. So this is over off of, uh, looks like it's at 110 One Mile Parkway which is pretty exciting for me personally. So last week we closed on the Madison Square Shopping Center up in, up in Madison, which is a 32-and-a-half-acre uh, site that's currently a shopping center. And this is about probably not even a mile from that location. So what we're, you know, that's, uh, that's a pretty timely announcement. I, I appreciate that, Graystar. Thanks for um, doing that as soon as we close. That helps us quite a bit. Uh, but it looks like uh, it's a 22.4-acre site. And let's see, they're planning 16 three-story buildings, so it's probably going to be all surface parked if they're all three-story. That means that they're walk-ups, so probably a garden-style apartment, which makes sense for, for, the, uh, for the part of town that it's in. You know, this is about 15 minutes north of downtown Nashville, and because of the interstate access, it is, in my opinion, it's, it's very affordable because nobody's moved out there, and because of the interstate access, it's, it's just an unparalleled location. You're actually geographically further away from downtown than Green Hills is, and Green Hills is south of Nashville. It's one of the most desirable areas to live. Uh, but drive time, you're actually closer because you've got I-65, you've got Briley Parkway, and you've got Ellington Parkway. So very easy. All of these major thoroughfares to get into and out of downtown. Looks like Atlanta's Dwell Architecture and Nashville's Kimley Horn um, are involved in the project. Um, they, that's pretty cool. Uh, this is one of uh, – so Madison is one of a couple dozen Nashville suburbs growing – wow, growing for several consecutive years. I mean, Madison has had a, uh, a pretty strong up and coming um, over, the last, uh, over the last little bit. I mean, it's – like I said, 
it's got everything going for it. It's an affordable part of Nashville. It's got some incredible interstate connectivity, which of course is paramount when you are dealing with uh, the traffic issues that Nashville has, because we keep voting out transit, so we don't want to. We don't want it. So, well, when I say we, I'm not including myself. I'm just saying the city keeps voting it down. But that's uh, that's you know uh, that will make living near interstate and having interstate connectivity that much more critical. Uh, when you're looking at moving to Nashville or where you're going to move within Nashville. Oh, look at that. So this is actually, this is the site that I was just talking about. This is what we just bought um, right down the street from this. That's pretty funny. Um, Andy, I'm going to bring you in. Do you have any comments on uh, everything that we are just talking about, whether it's whether it's on Graystar or whether it's on the Amazon distribution facility? What do you think? The... The scope of these investments with Amazon, with Graystar, with all these big national name companies that are finally saying it is time to start planting our roots here in Nashville, that's just going to keep happening more and more and more. And it's really, as we've talked about before, we've talked about in ULI's emerging trends and what is real estate going to look like in 2021 and into the future. Cities like Nashville right? Cities like Nashville, like Austin, like Charlotte, these cities are starting to compete with the gateway cities in levels of institutional investment. So that's why we are so bullish on this market that we're here in Nashville and places like Chattanooga that we're investing. And really, you know, it's why we think that if you do real estate the right way here, you know, you buy at a good price, make sure you're not overpaying for something. But if you do it the right way, you know, you're going to set yourself up for life. And that's why we're so incredibly blessed to be here and working in this real estate market. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. One thing that's pretty interesting to note, too, uh, about this Madison deal, there's, there's been several apartment announcements in Madison in, in, the, in recent months, really. But in the last 10 to 15 plus years, there's almost no new construction apartment complexes. So you think about being 15 minutes outside of downtown with a consistently year-over-year population growth, uh, the fact that there hasn't been anything developed in these neighborhoods uh, is pretty pretty wild to me. So, anyway, I thought that that was pretty interesting. Moving on to Market Watch. So, this week's Market Watch, like I, like I teased a little bit uh, there in the beginning, is a, is a really cool city. Um, we, we actually talked about it a little bit last week and how it kept popping up on the Urban Land Institute's emerging trends in real estate. So I figured, you know what, we've got to talk about it. So, of course, we are talking about Boise, Idaho. So, again, we're starting off in the ULI emerging trends uh, in real estate PDF. If you've not read through this, I'm telling you, we're going we're gonna to probably pull from this every single week just because it's so good. If you're not familiar with where Boise is, it is one state off of the, the western coast. Um, I didn't realize that Boise had so much going for it, and, and you know, maybe, maybe that's on me. But uh, digging into it, it's a really, really cool, unique city. Uh, so apparently it had uh, some very high um, U-Haul premiums uh, back when COVID first hit because so many Californians were actually leaving California and heading for Phoenix, Salt Lake City, Las Vegas, Boise, and Portland. You know, you think about that. Boise is up there with Phoenix, Salt Lake City, and Vegas, and even Portland. I mean, those are pretty popular big cities um, for, for people to be moving to. Uh, 
Looks like uh, we'll skip on that one. So in terms of overall real estate prospects, Boise is top 20 in the country. It's number 19, sitting just ahead of Washington, D.C., and just behind Orange County. Pretty impressive for a, a small little city that has a population of, I want to say, around 700,000. Uh, and look at that. It's one of the boutique markets. It's in the top 20 in terms of overall real estate prospects. Now look at this. Number seven in terms of home building pro prospects ahead of Atlanta. If you are looking at building homes and you're trying to find an affordable city to break into and start your home building, Boise is has better home building prospects than Atlanta. I mean, that's that's a pretty, you know, that'll make you second guess paying as much as you're having to pay for all these lots. I mean, in Nashville, you're paying, I mean, I remember when you could go to, you know, like North Nashville and, eat, you know, and get a lot for like 10 or 20 grand. And you could go to East Nashville and get one for, you know, 50 to 75 grand. And now in North Nashville, it's like a minimum of eighty to $100,000 minimum for a single lot. Uh, in East Nashville, you're looking at, at, at you know, one hundred and twenty to sometimes $150,000 for a single lot. That's pretty expensive for urban. Uh, you know, of, of course, if you're building a $2 million house, you know, that you could pay $250,000 or more. It doesn't matter. But, you know, these are more urban housing. It's more urban housing. So it's just they're smaller units. Um, let's see. Boise is considered a boutique or affordable market, affordable market, um, such as Omaha, Tucson, Greenville, and Madison. And it's what uh, ULI uh, uh, designates as a niche boutique market. So thrown in there with Chattanooga, which you all know, if you've been watching the show at all, you know that I am big on Chattanooga. So it's up there with Chattanooga, Des Moines, Greenville, South Carolina, Knoxville, Tennessee, Omaha, Portland, and Richmond. Pretty cool. In terms of, let's see, local market perspective, investor demand. They're just above average um, on the list. It looks like they're at about a 3.52 out of 5. So uh, still better than, than most markets, uh, but nothing to write home about. Looks like in terms of local market perspective on the development and redevelopment opportunities, they're 3.56. They are in the top 20. Uh, cities to do that just behind New York uh, and Orange County. Pretty interesting. So in terms of the U.S. multifamily property buy, hold, sell recommendations, it looks like most are looking to buy. Uh, one, one other thing that's pretty interesting about that market, since it's, it's a smaller market and there's a ton of land around it, it's a great development opportunity. Looks like 59% are buying multifamily in Boise, which is really high. I mean, that puts it at number, what is that, number six? Um, barely behind Boston and, and neck and neck with Nashville. Looks like 34% are holding and only 6% of apartment complexes are selling or multifamily properties are selling in that market. Let's see here. On the office property side, 22% are buying. Very different market night and day compared to 59%. So only 22% are looking to buy office in Boise, while 67% are holding. So it looks like it's a, a decent market. Um, it's not all that crazy, uh, but they're also not trying to sell, right? So it's a, it's a good hold market. Let's see here. So this is talking about the boutique markets and what makes them you know, kind of boutique. They're smaller markets with lively downtowns, diversity and leisure, culture, 
and natural outdoor amenities and stable economic bases that withstood the COVID-19 downturn better than many markets. Uh, it looks like along with the lower cost of living and doing business, they offer something for everyone. I mean, look, if, if Boise is similar to Chattanooga, it really does offer something for everyone. Um, you know, that's, I, I love the, the, the smaller city that has, you know, the tech and the business and the entrepreneurial side of it, but, you know, five minutes and, and you're in the mountains, which is pretty cool. Boise, Chattanooga, Des Moines, Greenville. So these are all the boutique markets that they're talking about. All have populations between 600,000 and 1.3 million. That must be some sort of sweet spot uh, in terms of, of a city's development. Okay, and this is, let's see, local, public, and private investment. Puts it at a 3.38 out of 5. So, you know, that still looks like about top 20. Um, but, you know, that's, that's average is what uh, ULI is saying. And over here in terms of availability of debt and equity of, ca availability of debt and equity capital, it is below average. Looks like a 3.2 out of 5. Uh, there are many markets that are doing better than it. That's not surprising, though, if you think about it, because, you know, Boise is kind of a sleeper. I mean, it was to me, at least. It was a sleeper market. So, um, you know, it's, it's no surprise that debt and, and equity is just not necessarily putting that at the top of their list. I wouldn't have put it at the top of mine. So, all right, let's move on. This one is an article on LinkedIn from Shannon Robnett. Why invest in commercial real estate in Boise, Idaho? Love the SEO ability of that right there, by, by the way. Uh, writing as many blog posts as we do, that is like the most SEO positive uh, title you could possibly have. So this is a pretty interesting article. He's talking about how Boise is a growing commercial real estate market. Um, for the last few years, Forbes magazine has ranked Boise, Idaho as one of the fastest growing cities in the United States. Um, let's see. Population of more than 730,000 people. Uh, and, hey, like Nashville, consistently ranks on a slew of top 10 lists. Looks like uh, best U.S. downtowns, uh, best city to raise a family, healthiest, best place to retire, uh, best place to be a doctor, good spot for yogis and asthmatics. Um, job growth with employers like Amazon and the Treasure Valley, uh, with some of the state's largest employers already being Boise-based, job growth can sustain the population growth we rely on to support our syndication investments. That's great. Seems like they've got a very, very strong uh, job market going on out there. Uh, Idaho is a business-friendly state regarding taxes. I don't know exactly what their tax structure is, uh, but it looks like uh, it's, it's relatively attractive climate. Uh, it says regulations are minimal, therefore creating an environment where perfectly legal tax shelter investments are free to grow. That's great. I mean, that's always that's what investors want, right? That's why a lot of people are flocking to Tennessee and to, and to Texas. I mean, in Florida, you know, no state income taxes. Looks like uh, Boise is a great place to retire. Uh, that, that seems to be a recurring theme. Uh, and, and it's because of the, the how cool the downtown is and, and apparently what that brings to, to, uh, to, uh, to the people that live there, as well as all of the amenities of being in, you know, out in the country, out in the world. Uh, it's very affordable, so it seems like a lot of people from California and Washington State are moving there because, you know, it, it, those are both very expensive states to live in, even if you're making a lot of money. Looks like uh, they cover some reasons to live and work in Boise. The outdoor culture 
Um, you can go hiking, camping, skiing. There's water sports. And it looks like you get all four seasons, which I don't know if you've ever spent uh, any four seasons um, up in, you know, Mont- I've spent some in Montana, Wyoming. It's amazing. It's, uh, it's a lot of fun. It makes you, you know, I think Nashville gets four seasons. But then you go to, <laughs> to a place like that, and they, they get some crazy seasons, uh, which is a lot of fun to see. Boise State University, which, you know, if you're a football fan, they are the uh, – that's the football team that has the bright blue field that, in my opinion, is really tough to watch on TV, but uh, it stands out. I mean, you know, I, I recognize them every time they're on the TV. That was good marketing. Uh, local arts scene. Apparently, Boise is large enough to attract Garth Brooks and Kiss um, and some other – and they've got some, uh, a smaller local music scene as well. Pretty cool. Okay, moving on. This, this article is from Rocket Homes. Why Idaho is one of the top housing markets in the U.S. In the previous decade, it was all about moving to the big coastal cities. New York, Los Angeles, San Francisco. But uh, urbanites are saying goodbye to the big city life in favor of less crowded, more affordable inland cities and towns in the Midwest and western regions of the U.S. I mean, of course. Everyone seems to be migrating to Idaho. Look at that. I mean, compared to – this is a little misleading because it makes it seem – I guess I guess it's just pointing out what which state is Idaho. But 4.6% um, of migration, immigration, uh, to Idaho, which is about the same as Wyoming and, you know, just a little bit more than Wyoming, you know, just a little bit more than Colorado and Nevada. So it's actually beating out those three states, which is pretty interesting. Nearly 80,000 people moved to Idaho in 2018 alone, according to the U.S. Census Bureau. That's a lot of people. That is a lot of people to just move to a state. And, and it's not like Idaho has a whole bunch of, of cities that you can really um, you know, move to and spread that population out. I, they're probably going to Idaho Falls and Boise and you know maybe really one other city. Uh, they have one of the largest percentages of population growth from 18 to 19 compared to other states with a 2.1% increase in population. That is huge. I mean, that doesn't sound like a lot, but that's a lot. Uh, looks like the next highest states for population growth were the Nevada, Arizona, and Utah, which each saw 1.7%. So it saw almost a half a percent increase more than all of those other states. I can't stand when people do graphs like this because it's you know visually so misleading. Like this is increasing by 1.9 percent, but it looks just based on physical size that it's tripled and then almost increased by 50 percent. But it looks like the population growth has gone from 1.7 million, uh, 1.717 in 2017 to 1.787 in 2019. So pretty pretty good pretty good increase in population. Uh, well, actually, that's pretty interesting right there because we were just talking about how, how Boise has about 730,000 people. So think about that. Boise has, I mean, almost half. Almost half of the population of Idaho lives in Boise. So that's a, that's a pretty good metric um, just to think of there. Looks like uh, United Van Lines conducts an annual study tracking the amount of inbound and outbound moves. Can you imagine the amount of data that, that those moving companies have? It was pretty interesting to watch that when COVID hit to see where the, all the U-Haul trailers were, were going and how, how expensive they were in states like California. Everybody's trying to get out. Looks like the most common reason for, uh, for moving to Idaho among those surveyed was retirement, followed by job, family, and lifestyle. Yeah. 
that makes sense. Retirees are flocking for that affordability. It's a relatively low cost of living, especially compared, yeah, especially compared to neighboring states, Washington State, California. Very expensive to live there, very high taxes. Um, looks like uh, a pretty good chunk came from California. So 21,000 of the 80,000 people, so 25% of the people that moved to Idaho in 18 were from California. Uh, is there a state in the union that is not getting a significant amount of Californians moving there? I mean, at what point is California just going to have no more people left? I feel like everywhere, everyone you talk to is like, yeah, I only meet people from California now. I mean, everybody in Nashville says that. Everybody in Austin says that. It seems like Californians are taking over the rest of the country. Um, it's like that South Park episode where New Jerseyans start, like, moving west. Anyways, uh, another significant chunk, 14955 What's called 15000 came from Washington State. So, you know, 20%, give or take, came from Washington State. That's pretty significant. It's no coincidence that both of these states are home to, to the most expensive places to live in the country, of course, both in terms of home prices and the overall cost of living. So Boise is apparently Idaho's crown jewel. Like I said, it's got almost half the population. Uh, it's no wonder the California expats are falling in love with Idaho, particularly the city of Boise. Looks like it's good for the outdoorsy types, avid hikers, has very scenic offerings. Um, as you can see, this was the article that I was reading, and I was like, you know what? I've got to go. I've got to go visit Boise. Like, spend a week there and just work. It's, it sounds like a really cool city. Uh, and by the way, if you're if you're listening live or if you're listening on the podcast, I do have links to all of these articles in the show notes. Uh, if you're listening on the podcast, just go check out the um, the show notes there. Uh, they're in the in the YouTube channel uh, as well. Looks like uh, Boise's made several of U.S. News and World Report's best of lists, ranking 17th in best places to live, 4th in safest places to live, and 20th in best places to live for quality of life. It's pretty cool. Okay, Idaho's commercial real estate market rebounds. This is an article from postregister.com. So this article basically covers the exactly what most uh, markets in the U.S. were experiencing after COVID. Looks like, you know, about 51%, uh, they were seeing about 51% of the activity in May, uh, the leasing activity that they were uh, pre-COVID. So prospects for leasing dropped off by half, which is a lot. That's, that can be pretty devastating to a leasing market. But it looks like uh, here recently activity has been up by 104%, um, which is awesome. Let's see. We've definitely seen an increase in the market. The retail market came to a halt for a time, but once we got out of that, groups of retailers as well as office tenants were ready to hit the ground running, Brian Wilson said. Looks like Brian Wilson is with uh, Top Commercial. One reason for the strong growth factors locally is out-of-towners, saying Idaho Falls is more appealing than other major cities in the region, in addition to being a less competitive market with more favorable capitalization rates, of course. I mean, cap, cap rates are all based off of the risk uh, of the asset that you're buying. So the, the, the riskier, which means, uh, you know, the less stable or the less potentially stable the income is, the higher those cap rates will be. So your smaller cities, uh, you'll actually be able to get higher cap rates than you would uh, in the bigger cities, obviously. Let's see. Leasing activity has picked up, but 40% of those renewals were short-term. Interesting. So people are, I mean, again, this is, this is kind of the trend that we're starting to see all over the country. People are taking that, uh, they're, they're just renewing short term so that they don't extend their risk 
for years in case, you know, we have another resurgence or this keeps going on for a little bit. Um, so this is pretty interesting. I mean, you know, there's a lot of people moving into Idaho. And, of course, the, the commercial real estate rents are going to continue to pick up. Andy, what are, uh, what are your thoughts on, uh, on Boise? You know, Tyler, it's funny that we're talking about Boise. I first visited Boise about five years ago in 2016. I think one of the few people from Nashville ever to make it out to Idaho. We went there <laughs> on a trip from we the National Mock Trial Championship was held in Boise that year. And I remember going out and we're a bunch of kids. It was a Friday night. And we wanted to kind of see what was going on in the town. And I remember walking out there and it was completely dead. And it was like, gosh, it's it's nine o'clock on a Friday. Where are all the people? And I, I think, you know, honestly, if you had talked to Nashville and came to Nashville about 15, 20 years ago, you would have felt pretty much the same way. You know, you go out at, you, late at night and there's yeah. kind of really not a lot going on. And as, as we're seeing, Boise is growing. Idaho is growing super fast. And I think the biggest tell was when we were looking at the ULI descriptions of how it was one of the top home building markets in the country, but there wasn't necessarily a lot of interest from institutional capital. And I think over the next few years, you're going to see that start to change. And Boise is probably in a position that Nashville was in maybe 15, 20 years ago, which if you're out there on the West Coast, I think Boise could be a great market to look into and we're really take advantage of before that institutional capital comes in. And if you can figure out how to get deals done, you're going to make a lot of money because just as we said for Nashville, right? We managed to scoop in and get some deals here like this Madison Town Center we mentioned that we're buying. And then all of a sudden now we have Graystar coming in and all these other companies coming in, you know, and we probably got a way better deal than they did because we've been on the ground. We understand the market. So if you can set yourself up in these markets that have prospects for great development, great home building, great all this stuff, but maybe the institutional capital is there yet, you probably will be rewarded in the long run. Yeah, I think that's very true. I mean, look, they've got a population of 730,000 already. I mean, that's that's a critical mass. That's not small. I mean, it wasn't very long ago that Nashville was about that size, right? I mean, in the in the last, you know, 10, 20 years is when Nashville has really started, you know, amassing this this massive population growth. So, you know, I think in Nashville's just at, you know, a million within the, the city limits and probably two million in the MSA. I mean, Nashville's not a whole lot bigger. And so, you know, if you're if you're on the West Coast, I mean, obviously, Idaho is going to be a very attractive investment for you because it's a more tax friendly environment. And it's a quick flight away, right? Like you could even drive there if you really wanted to. So it's it's very accessible, which makes sense. I mean, that's why people are retiring there. If you've got family that's still in California and you want to be able to visit and you don't want to have to fly four hours across the country or five hours to Florida, you know, um, it just makes it that much easier. All right. Moving on to the future of commercial real estate. These are the articles that we think are shaping how commercial real estate is going to look as we move into the new world, uh, whether that's a post-COVID environment or a post-tech environment, it doesn't matter. I mean, commercial real estate is constantly changing, as it should be. It's, try it's finally trying to catch up uh, to uh, where all of these other industries are, because, you know, as you hear me say all the time, it was stuck in the 80s. Uh, but this is, uh, this is a really interesting article here, starting off with, a, uh, with Bloomberg. 
Real estate investors desperate to spend $250 billion hoard. Property distress uh, is easing with pandemic recovery in sight, and the dash for deals and record dry powder help lift property prices. So when we went into this, uh, this pandemic, there was a massive amount of dry powder on the sidelines, which meant that investors were flush with cash. They were sitting around waiting to go buy stuff. So, you know, that is one of the reasons that commercial real estate fared so well throughout the throughout the downturn, which is pretty interesting if you think about it. So you've got all of these guys who are who have a bunch of money that they're ready to go spend it. But the reason they're not able to spend it is because everybody else that's sitting on property also has a whole bunch of money. So they're not desperate to sell. Uh, so, you know, that caused a very tight buyer's market. There's just not a whole lot of property that hit the market. Uh, investors with record hoard of money to finance distressed commercial real estate deals are finding themselves in a tough spot. There's nowhere to spend it. The massive wave of defaults expected after coronavirus shuttered offices, hotels, and stores last year has so far failed to materialize. Everybody thought that when COVID hit and all of these businesses got shut down and people weren't going to be able to pay their rent, that there would just be this massive, massive amount of commercial properties hitting the market because you've got all these owners who, you know, they can't cover their mortgages. They can't, they're not collecting rent. So what are they going to do? They, you know, just sell. But commercial property actually increased in value, which made, you know, these sellers hold on to it longer and good for them. I mean, banks were also willing to work with commercial property owners when this first hit. So uh, it actually worked out really well for, you know, people who were already holding property. Um, Let's see, you know, this is positive news <laughs> for most Americans, uh, but to a select group of investors who, part, who anticipated raking in big profits from the misfortunes of others, it's a problem, which, you know, look, there, that, there's the opportunistic side of real estate that, uh, you know, it's, it's neither a positive nor a negative. We can't, I mean, sometimes it's a positive, sometimes it's a negative. I would say it kind of all washes out. But look, uh, that's, that, there were a lot of fortunes made in 2009, 2010, the groups that were willing to go out and buy up deals that had the cash. I mean, all of the money, uh, the, the majority of the wealth made in the last 10, 12, you know, 11 years, I guess, uh, was actually made in 9, 10, and 11 because that was when everything was on sale at a discount, right? Like that's, that's the way to look at these market downturns is real estate's not going down in value. It's just on sale. Right. So go out and buy up as much of it as you can, because it's going to come back and it has come back. It's come roaring back. I mean, if you bought uh, there's some properties, you know, that we were looking at, um, we were copying out a site that we bought on Dickerson Pike in East Nashville. And, you know, I think Andy found that it, it, it increased in value on Dickerson Pike land increased in value on average, like 15 or 20 percent a year for the last five years. Just land just increase in value. So think about that. Uh, that's that's pretty remarkable. Commercial real estate prices have held up or even risen because so much money is chasing so few deals. We start to see frustration rolling over into desperation, said Will Sledge, Senior Managing Director in the Capital Markets Unit of Brokerage, Jones Lang LaSalle, Inc. Investors are willing to push prices up and their yields down in order to simply deploy capital. So you might be wondering to yourself, why would a group be like just need to deploy capital in order to get lower returns. So if you're in private equity or you're a hedge fund or you're a REIT and you've raised all of this capital, 
right? You have promised investors a return, whether you deploy that capital or not, right? So if you're supposed to go get your investors a 6% cash on cash return, and that money's just sitting in the bank making you nothing, technically making you negative money uh, because of inflation, then you're, you're really far behind. I mean, you think about uh, how much you're gonna, how much uh, cash on cash return you'll have to get in the next investment you make just to make up for those lost months, right? So, if you're if you're going for a six percent cash on cash return and you find something that's a four percent, but it allows you to deploy the capital quickly and uh, it takes a good chunk of that out, they'll likely take it, just so that they you know because four percent is better than zero percent, right? And when you're talking about tens if not hundreds of millions of dollars, and maybe even hundreds of billions of dollars, you've got to go deploy capital. You've, you've got to put that money in play. So looks like uh, U.S. private equity stock fund, stock funded, uh, I'm sorry, U.S. private equity funds stockpiled more than $250 billion of commercial real estate loans as of March 23rd. That's crazy high. Included a record $75.8 billion for distressed debt. Interesting. Let's see. Wow, Cerberus uh, Capital Management closed a $2.8 billion opportunistic real estate fund, um, exceeding an original $2 billion target. So, yeah, all of these these funds went out and raised an opportunistic fund. Again, an opportunistic fund is a fund that they raise for the sole purpose of buying up distressed assets. Looks like uh, they're planning on increasing the cash piles even more. 30% of institutional investors are targeting distressed and opportunistic commercial real estate deals this year. Nearly double the early 2020 share, according to CBRE. That's very interesting. (laughs) With This is great. Jim Costello, uh, senior vice president of real estate data firm Real Capital Analytics, says... With all the capital out there, there's going to be a bit of a Three Stooges effect. Everybody's running through the door at once, but nobody can get through. That makes sense. Everybody's fighting over deals. Like, take my money, take my money. It's pretty, it's pretty wild. I mean, it, you know, just to see the cap rates that stuff in Nashville is trading for is remarkable. So it looks like, I mean, look at that cash stockpile. It's upwards of, I mean, $250 billion dollars. Compared to 226 billion last year and 183 billion the year before, that's a massive amount of cash just sitting on the sidelines waiting to go get deployed, right? And again, they the clock is ticking. They have the money already. They're paying for it. They they need to get that rolling. That's pretty interesting. All right, moving on to Globestreet.com article. Uh, here's what rising interest rates mean for cap rates. So cap rates are, are tied very tightly to interest rates. So as interest rates rise, cap rates are going to be affected. It's just the nature of the beast. So let's dive into that a little bit because I get asked about cap rates all the time. Looks like an argument can be made for downward pressure on cap rates for popular assets like industrial and multifamily and recovery types like senior housing and retail. So rising interest rates are unlikely to push cap rates up this year, counter to what many investors believe. That's actually, that's pretty interesting. That's a completely different take than I would have thought. The interest rate on 10-year treasuries has nearly tripled since the end of July when it was at an all-time low near 50 basis points. That's crazy. 
but rates remain near historic lows, which is a good sign for investors. And so when, when interest rates are historically low, that's how you can start justifying these incredibly low cap rates, right? I mean, if, if interest rates are, you know, 2.9%, you know, you can justify paying 4.5% cap rates because you're collecting a spread, right? So that, that's, that's kind of how these, these hedge funds and private equity funds and these bigger REITs just kind of look at these projects. They're deploying the capital. They're getting the spread. Uh, looks like, uh, according to, to John Chang, the Senior Vice President and Director of Research Services at Marcus & Millichap, normally that kind of growth, especially when fueled by trillions of stimulus, this is a, um, let's see, 8% growth range, uh, 8% upward pressure um, on the rates, uh, will put upward pressure on inflation. And, of course, the counterbalance on inflation is to push interest rates up. But that said, inflation remains exceptionally low at a tame 1.3%, which is pretty interesting when you think about how much money we just printed in the last 12 months and our in inflation rate is staying at 1.3%. At I have a hard time believing it's going to be there for a while. Uh, uh, looks like literally the next sentence. The Fed wants to see inflation in the 2% range, according to Chang. There you go. So why are rates raising? Well, uh, falling uncertainty and expectations of growth. It's pretty interesting. Money is flowing out of safe havens like bonds and treasuries and into growth investments like stock market and real estate. Flow of money is putting upward pressure on interest rates. Of course it is. Let's see here. In pre-recession 2007, the yield spread narrowed to just 200 BIPs while it opened to 580 BIPs during the great financial crisis when interest rates went down and cap rates went up. Gosh, can you imagine the spread that you'd be making if you were investing then or if you were able to convince a bank to lend you money? The current spread is 480 bips. Economists have a bullish outlook for 2021. Liquidity is good. Rates are low. Investors are increasingly less fearful of the pandemic. I mean, it's investors have been relatively fearless of the pandemic since about June to September. In my experience, I mean, that's that's really when everything that we started doing just absolutely took off. It was like there was a pent up demand for three months of just lost time. Um, and everybody really wanted to make that make up for it. All right. Moving on to this article from Biz Now. The tide is turning away from shrinking office footprints. So. We've been talking, obviously, about the office space almost every episode, um, every week, updating you guys on what is going on in the world of office space because it, it, it was a buzzword when the pandemic first hit. You know, what's going on in the world of office space? Um, well, this is, uh, this is a pretty interesting article. So as businesses around the world grow more familiar with the pros and cons of remote work, their commitment to the office is deepening. Multiple surveys conducted in the past month indicate that office-using companies do not intend to shrink their footprints. Only 17% of CEOs surveyed by KPMG reported any intent to cut back on office space, down from 69% in August. So that just shows you right there, you know, the private sector's take on how, how the pandemic is really going to affect us. I mean, look, when you're surveying people, who are under duress, who are under stress, their responses are going to be completely different than what their response would be once they're out of that stress, right? 
I mean, if you're if you're asking somebody in the middle of a pandemic when they're having to pay rent and nobody can be in the office and work, if they're going to, to shrink office or get rid of their office space, they're probably going to say, hell yeah, I'm getting rid of this. This is an expense that we can't deal with. You know, we're going to do Zoom. But as soon as like everything is relaxed and loosened up and you're ready, to, you're able to go back to work and there's nothing to worry about, I don't see that really continuing on. And, you know, apparently, you know, what is that, 73% or 83% of CEOs agree um, that were surveyed. Let's see, 72% plan no change in their office usage, and uh, 20% plan some sort of reduction. 7% plan to grow their footprints. That's pretty positive to see. So office space, again, office space is going to do just fine. Let's see here. Net absorption fell to its lowest annual total on record in 2020, according to Collier's National Fourth Quarter Office Report. Not surprising, right? Everybody put leasing on pause. That's that's really all that that was. They wanted to see what was going to happen first. So major financial institutions in the UK, such as the 18,000-employee Nationwide Building Society, are committing to flexible or hybrid working models on a permanent basis. Citigroup will also require most of its employees to work in offices only three days a week and is banning internal Zoom meetings on Fridays. Wow, I love that. Let's just ban Zoom meetings in general. Um, an acknowledgement that virtual interactions take a toll. They really do. I mean, everybody that I talk to is so over Zoom. It is, it's so taxing. And also, I, I feel like a lot of people now are having Zoom meetings when we could just be having phone calls. Like, are we, are, we, are we doing Zoom meetings just for the sake of doing Zoom meetings? I, I, like, I was on one earlier today where we weren't even – there was nothing up on the screen. It was just a bunch of people looking at each other <laughs> that could have j just as easily been a phone call. And I, I think that, you know, th this, is, this is it. It's taking a toll on people. Let's see. Like Amazon, banking giant Morgan Stanley expects to bring its employees back to the office by the end of the year. Some permanent remote work will remain, but only for certain categories of employee. Right. Makes makes sense. All right, let's bring uh, let's bring Andy in to see what his thoughts are on the future of commercial real estate. So, Andy, what are your what are your thoughts here? Tyler, I think you know this again. We've been touching on these themes every single week, right? For this office article, right? Remember last week we were just talking about how Google is expanding its office footprint, right? Some of these big tech companies even. And obviously, there are people who will take it one direction. Salesforce is going to say, no more office ever. Twitter says, no more office ever. But then you have these other tech companies like Google who understand the power and need for collaboration, creative thought, thinking that can really only go on when you have an in-person space dedicated to facilitate the productivity of your employees. Google says, we're adding millions of square feet of office space, you know, 70% of people here are not going to CEOs are not going to shrink their office space. So, you know, that that just goes to show how important the human interaction part of working is. And I will also touch quickly on the cap rate and interest rate stuff. I think that seeing that spread where they had said there used to be a 580 bip spread in the great financial crisis and then right yep. now it's a 480 bip spread i mean that tells that tells me it's that pretty aggressive you, 
it's still a pretty good market to invest no matter <laughs> no matter how 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 difficult we uh, we might be you know I mean we might be thinking oh cap rates are way too high cap rates are or, I mean sorry way too low way too low it's too expensive I mean they said before right before the great financial crash uh, bips were only at a 200 point spread so if we have room to go even remotely in that direction you're going to see property prices continue to go up so it's kind of what we've been saying buy at a good price right now make sure that the deal works right now and the upside the upside in in a lot of these markets especially if you're buying a growing market you know you might have incredible upside that you might that you obviously don't underwrite assuming that upside is going to happen but i think the real estate market is is set to create a bunch of wealth for you if you can get in at the right time at the right price yeah i mean look it's just like uh real estate always is you make your money when you buy you can still make money in this market you know a lot of people think that we're buying at the top of the market that's just not true you know you would have thought that we were buying at the top of the market two years ago well everybody that bought at the top of the market two years ago they're doing really well they i mean you know everybody's looking back going wow how did you see that how did you know um it's not rocket science. If you're if you're just being intelligent about the deals that you're doing and you're you're thoroughly vetting them and making sure you have a plan B, a plan C, you're you're going to do just fine. Moving on to private equity deal dive. So these are some of the biggest deals that have gotten done around the country in the world of commercial real estate. So starting first with this article from Yahoo Finance, Brookfield to take property arm private in a six and a half billion dollar deal. This is pretty significant. So Brookfield Asset Management Inc. said it reached a six and a half billion dollar agreement to acquire the shares of Brookfield Property Partners LP that it doesn't already own, boosting its offer to take private its real estate arm. It's pretty interesting. Why would they spend that much money to take the company private? Looks like uh, they plan to acquire the minority stake for $18.17 per unit which would mark a 10% increase to the $16.50 uh, a unit Brookfield Asset offered in January. So look at that. Holding out a couple more months, you get 10% increase. Uh, that's a 26% premium over what shares were trading prior to that the for earlier proposal in January. Looks like the board unanimously approved the deal. And let's see. So Brookfield opera owns, operates, and develops one of the largest portfolios of real estate in the world. Uh, at the end of December, it had about $88 billion in total assets, um, including, let's see, London's Cannery Wharf. Is it Cannery Wharf or Canary Wharf? Probably Cannery. Uh, Brookfield Place in New York, uh, 2018. Brookfield acquired GGP Inc., which is the second largest mall operator in the U.S. for about $15 billion. My opinion, that was a great buy uh, because, shop, you know, it's just like what Andy and I were talking about. Shopping malls, the indoor malls, those are a great buy if you're buying them right. I mean, everybody, so many people are scared of them because, uh, you know, indoor shopping is dying. Retail is dying. You know, Amazon's killing everything. I, there are plenty of malls that are doing really well. They, they pivoted well. They're offering more experiential type of, uh, you know, businesses and, and restaurants and bars. And it, they're crushing it. Let's see. Pandemic took a toll on the company. Uh, looks like they reported a $2 billion loss uh, last year, uh, and shares fell 21%. Let's 
Let's see. So, Lazard for Freres uh, advised Brookfield Property Special Committee and gave a fair market value of fourteen to eighteen and a half dollars per unit. The deal terms are ultimately attractive for Brookfield Property unit holders. I mean, I would say if it's ten percent higher than what they offered back in January, that's a pretty good buyout. Um, in the five years leading up to the pandemic, Brookfield Property units have traded at a discount ranging between twenty percent and forty-five percent of the consensus net asset value. Interesting. So it looks like Brookfield already owned about 60% of Brookfield Property Partners, which had a market value of about $17 billion as of Wednesday's close. Oh, interesting. So under the terms of the deal, Brookfield Property stakeholders uh, can choose to take $18.17 per unit in cash, 0.3979 of a Brookfield Class A share, or 0.7268 of a Brookfield Property Partners preferred unit, subject to the proration. The maximum cash amount is about 50% or 3.27 billion. Pretty interesting. Okay, here we go. So this is why they took it private. They said it was appealing because it has consistently traded at a discount to the underlying value of the assets. I mean, of course, if, if the assets are, are worth more than what it is currently trading for, it's go ahead and buy it. He said he believed that was because much of the company's value was created through the development of projects like New York's Manhattan West, which takes years to generate returns for investors. That's true, right? Like that's uh, that's how Warren Buffett decides to buy all of his investments. He waits and looks at you know the underlying assets are much more valuable than uh, what the what the stock market or the market in general is valuing them at. And there you go, you've got a deal. Um, Let's see. Rent collection from office tenants remained at normal levels in their portfolio. That's pretty great to hear. Um, occupancy did lag behind in many markets uh, because of the pandemic. Again, that makes sense. Everybody was just putting leasing on pause. Well, that's pretty interesting. They are taking uh, themselves uh, private. They're going private. Six and a half billion dollar deal. This is another one um, from Barron's on Brookfield. So Brookfield property, hot property, cool price. This is the Manhattan West uh, development in Hudson Yards up in New York. Um, so Brookfield Property Partners is one of the world's largest property owners. We already kind of covered that. Um, looks like they have a high octane strategy and lofty yield, uh, which comes at a depressed price. I mean, you lo look at that development. Hudson Yards is one of the most ambitious real estate developments, uh, honestly, that the country has probably ever undertaken. It's, it's a very impressive project. They're covering up um, all of the train yards. Um, not all of the train yards. They're covering up the Hudson Yards and uh, building basically a whole new neighborhood on top of the train tracks, uh, which is and, – and I, I, I wish that this had a map of the Hudson Yards so that I could show you guys. It is a huge, huge – I mean, it's like a trillion-dollar development, I want to say. It's It's wild. So, uh, unfortunately, we are stuck behind a paywall on this article. But you can see there, the, the property is three towers, um, and uh, it's beautiful. I mean, it's glass, which I'm not, I'm not the biggest fan of all glass towers, but, you know, they're, they're cheap, they're efficient. I get it. Um, you know what? Let's bring, uh, let's bring Andy in to get his take on Brookfield. So, Andy, Brookfield is, is obviously, you know, one of the largest owners of, of property um, in the world. What are your thoughts on, uh, on this news for, with them taking themselves private and also their development uh, in, in Hudson Yards? 
So I think first to touch on the Hudson Yards thing, Tyler, is that when you look at exactly what they're doing and how even how Hudson Yards is pivoting uh, to focus on post-coronavirus stuff, they are doing a lot of very innovative things where, as we talked about before, they're focusing on more exper experiential retail, right? Giving and having pop-up shops and having all these different kinds of experiences that are meant to draw you in. And people are going to go in. At the end of the day, it is a very different experience. There are some things that you can buy online, right? And I think that, you know, general things, you know, in, in a box that come to you from Amazon, I think most people are saying, yeah, I think it's just easier for me to come online. But what about, you know, browsing through clothing, clothing rags or trying things on in person and things, how do they look? You know, there's always going to be those experiences that if you can curate them and provide your guests a great experience, that's what they're really trying to do at Hudson Yards in order to set them apart from the competition. And it's going to be a long-term payoff. And as we said before, that's why they're taking themselves private. We, it had said in the article, they, because they were on the public market, they were trading at 45% discount to their fair asset value. And they said, why? You know, people on the public market always want the short term, what is my quarter over quarter percentage increase in returns? And if you're building a long-term focused company, you're never gonna be able to satisfy those investors for the quarter over quarter returns. And that's why, you know, the developments that we're trying to do and how we try to look at our projects here at Hamilton, right? You know, our Madison Square property, that's going to be a multi, multi-year project. It's going to take a long time, right? And the projects that we want to build and develop, we're not just trying to put up anything and get out of it in two or three years. We're trying to create them with long-term value the long-term investor in mind. And we think that's actually going to create better value for us over the long-term because we did the extra work, we did our extra due diligence, and perhaps we're not instantly getting cashed out tomorrow. But over the long run, which is more important anyway, you know, we think we're going to be able to get and achieve better value, which is exactly how Brookfield is, is valuing its own company as well. I think you're I think you're absolutely right. I mean, going public can be really tough on a company because instead of having the this internal these internal goals uh, that are driving the company and, and, you know, kind of that ethos that, that really started the company. Now you're beholden to stockholders and really all they care about at the end of the day is how much how much in dividends are you returning them? How much do their stock increase? You know, that's uh, it, it becomes this this almost downward spiral of chasing profits uh, that can that can head in a negative direction uh, instead of a positive direction. So um, I think that uh, I think this is a pretty interesting move uh, for Brookfield and, uh, you know, good for them. All right. Now for PropTech. So this is all of the technology that is going on in the world of commercial real estate, which is going to revolutionize the way that we that we own, operate, interact with commercial real estate and property, uh, which uh, you know I, of course, just find fascinating. Going back to what we were talking about earlier with uh, the you know commercial real estate coming into the new age, uh, these are the companies that are really leading the forefront uh, of that. So this one is coming at you from therealdeal.com. Storage sharing startup neighbor snags $53 million in a Series B. 
looks like Fifth Wall led that funding round. This is a pretty cool company. So it is, uh, they're basically looking to become the Airbnb for storage. So you've got a garage space, you've got um, an extra room in your house or whatever, like you go on and you say, you know, just like you would an Airbnb, you want to rent a room? Well, you can rent a room to just store some stuff if you want. So looks like neighbor.com founded in 2017 allows users to rent out storage space in their properties. The Utah-based startup will use the funding to expand its network of hosts and renters, the company announced on Wednesday. I actually saw a company um, advertising for this kind of stuff here in Nashville. I think they were a local Nashville group, but I don't know that they ended up going. I I don't see their their, uh, marketing anymore, so they must not have made it. Uh, Fifth Wall, a venture capital firm that has backed startups such as Open Door, Doma, and Industrious, that's a pretty big name, led the round. Pretty cool. Um, Let's see. They first targeted hosts who wanted to rent out extra space in their homes, such as basements, garages, or attics to neighbors seeking storage. I mean, that's what a great way to just monetize otherwise useless space, right? I mean, how, you know, is your attic really full or is your basement actually full? Um, No, those are usually spaces that we just leave sitting empty, right? That, that don't do anything. So what if you could make a hundred bucks a month off of that? I love this idea. You're monetizing some, it's, it's basically free money, right? Like it's money that's falling out of the sky. I had a client who bought a property last year and turns out we had an extra lot on the property that the neighbor wanted. So bought it, the deal worked then. And then the neighbor reached out to us afterwards and bought that property from us. And I, I told my client, I was like, that's free money, man. That just fell out of the sky. That's not money that we would have counted on. That significantly impacted the deal. This is just, just like that. Um, let's see. Neighbor has since begun working with landlords who find themselves without retail or restaurant tenants. That's great. Again, you're monetizing down space. I, I, I only see positive things for this. Joseph Woodbury, the startup CEO and co-founder, said in a statement that it operates tens of millions of square feet in big cities, small towns, suburbs, and rural areas across all 50 states. They are everywhere, apparently. They've been thriving in the pandemic, which, I mean, makes sense. Look, a lot of people moved back home. A lot of people moved in with other uh, you know, roommates in order to keep their bills lower. So, of course, you're going to have more stuff that you're going to need to put into storage. Um, I mean, storage has been crushing it in recent years anyway just because it is uh, – People are moving into smaller and smaller apartments. So when you do that, you're going to need to put stuff in storage so you have more uh, space. Um, Okay, moving on to the Wall Street Journal. Startup aims to be the Airbnb of storage space for the COVID-19 era. The firm converts vacant restaurants and offices and parking lots into storage space. So let's see. So this is, is, you know, continuing on with Neighbor.com, which is what we were just talking about. Uh, Let's see. They're taking... I mean, it's, it's really cool. They're, they're really utilizing every kind of property that they can. Um, I wonder if, if this article is going to go further into how the model actually works. Um, primary business is signing up residents with a spare garage or unused bedroom who want to rent it out for storage use. Let's see. As the pandemic forces retailers to shutter uh, and companies to close their offices, it is adding more landlords with new commercial tenants that are hard to find. Makes sense. They've added several million square feet of commercial space to the platform since the beginning of the pandemic. Think about that. That's a pretty significant increase. And what I love about this model is I bet you that they are doing a profit share model instead of doing a a lease, right? Because it doesn't make sense for them to come in and lease office space to turn it into 
storage space, right? They're going to come in here and they're going to work with the landlords on a, probably a profit share model that says, hey, while, you're, while your space is down, we'll rent it out and make you some money as storage, which, you know, what landlord would say no to that? Uh, one risk they face is that demand could drop sharply after the pandemic is over, uh, though many launched before COVID-19. I mean, that makes sense. I mean, you know, will people move back to more traditional uh, I mean, look at the highest and best use for these spaces. The highest and best use for a restaurant is a restaurant. It is not storage. So when the demand does come back, I can see, you know, these, these, uh, this type of use getting kicked out. Looks like uh, they raised $10 million in January in a round led by Andreessen Horowitz. I think it's safe to say finding a restaurant tenant is going to be difficult for the foreseeable future, says uh, Atit Jariwala, um, who owns a Thai restaurant in New York City. Oh, he's a, he's a New York property, New York City property investor. Um, why not take advantage and monetize the space? Exactly. I mean, it's just a, it's just a, a convenience. Um, let's see. Another neighbor customer is the Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu school Gracie University in Torrance, California. When the pandemic forced it to stop classes, co-founder Renner Gracie started thinking about other ways to make money. Today, the parking lot is filled with RVs, buses, trailers, boats, and cars. He said he makes between $100 and $120 a month for a single parking spot through neighbor. That's pretty amazing. I mean, you'd have to be in a city where there's very little parking. But uh, while a larger space for an RV can cost between $350 and $450. I mean, that's a great little profit model. Let's take a look at their website. Uh, give your home, give your truck, sofa, uh, wow, give your tools a home, uh, not a storage unit. So they're touting that their model is 50% cheaper, six times safer. That's interesting. I wonder how that's possible. Uh, and covered by a free $25,000 protection plan. I mean, that's a pretty compelling like landing page. I mean, you look at that and you're like, yeah, I mean, yeah, this is a, this is a great idea. So self-storage, car storage, RV storage, boat storage, trailer storage, business inventory. It looks like, you know, you could go uh, store anything. Um, you have more control over the location. It's month to month. No pesky paperwork. I'm sure there's at least something you've got to digitally sign. Um, talk as easy as texting. Okay, this is cool. So they've got some spaces, some example spaces here in Nashville. A 10 by 7 attic for $22 a month. That's actually really affordable. I mean, you know, 70 feet. I don't know how many cubic feet it is. That looks like it's like triangle, triangular. But you've got a 10 by 7 attic for $22. For, now, this is for the first month. I guess it goes up to $43 a month after that. 8 by 4 garage, $10 for the first month. A 20 by 20 garage, $80 for the first month. Goes up to 160 after that. Looks like you get half off the first month. But I mean, a 20 by 20 storage unit, that's probably going to be, I don't know. I, I mean, that's 400 square feet. That's a lot of space. I would imagine you're paying, I mean, that probably is about half the price of, of a typical storage space. So, you know, again, I love this, this sharing economy. It just, it's, it's so, it's so easy to, to make sense of. Um, let's, uh, let's bring Andy in here and get his thoughts on this. Andy, Andy, what are your thoughts on neighbor? Tyler, as just as you indicated, I think this is a great concept. We've been talking about a lot of these prop tech companies 
that are trying to take advantage of this underutilized space. And, you know, we've been talking for a long time how the WeWork model of lease arbitrage was not working. It was failing. It wasn't doing very well. You weren't making a lot of money on it. But where you can go in and you can do some sort of profit share, where both you and the landlord or the owner or whoever are aligned together, both of you guys make money if you succeed, right? That's the type of business in this space that you want to start up. And, you know, I, Tyler, I don't know why we wouldn't want to look at some of our buildings. We might want to consider yeah. doing something like this for, for some of our downtime too. I think that uh, the value proposition is certainly there. Yeah, actually, that's that's a great idea. We probably should. Let's uh, let's talk about that tomorrow because we, I mean we've got we've got plenty of vacant space. Uh, you know, because I mean my 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 investment model is to go buy buildings that are largely vacant and then re renovate them and lease them up. So we've got a couple of buildings that are sitting there uh, that we're currently going through the leasing process. That makes a lot of sense for. Let's do it. Let's see here. Am is dropping into the live chat. What are your thoughts and insights into cold storage spaces? Something I just learned about a couple of weeks ago. Never thought about it before. I think cold storage is very interesting. I'd love to uh, get Andy's thoughts on this here in a second, too. But cold storage is pretty interesting. I mean, look, it's you think about as uh, grocery delivery picks up, as uh, pharmaceutical delivery picks up, cold storage is going to become a necessity for these these companies to operate right so I, I think cold storage is pretty unique again it's you know you've got to figure out how to make the margins work i mean one one thing that's like really attractive about regular storage especially if it's not climate controlled is that you uh you don't have to worry about anything right like it's like multifamily without having to deal with the tenants without having to deal with the plumbing without having to deal with the park you know it's like there's there's so many positives to it. Now, of course, cold storage, you're, you're going to have to worry about the energy consumption and, of course, the design of the space. But it's not going to be far off from climate controlled. You're just going to have to have basically these very well insulated bays that are, um, you know, cold. Um, so, yeah, I think I think they're great. Um, you know, the, the, the problem that most of those operators are having right now is that it's really tough to find good space because they need to be in downtown cores or core adjacent. And the highest and best use for property in those areas is not cold storage. Um, it, is, it is redeveloping it into office retail or multifamily uh, or you know, something, something along those lines. But that being said, if you can get you know, good warehouse that's in a good location, you know, it's gotta be a good location, right? Because these are items that are being shipped. Probably, it's probably last mile delivery. Uh, more often than not, so they need to be very convenient to consumers. Um, but Andy, is there are there any thoughts that you would throw in on that that I didn't really cover? Yeah, Am, um, thank you for asking that question about cold storage. We actually covered a little bit about cold storage a few weeks ago in one of our earlier episodes. Essentially, one of the big things about cold storage right now is that because of exactly what you said, Tyler, the last mile delivery, grocery stores wanting to expand their delivery presence, Walmart expanding its delivery presence, Amazon moving into grocery, owning Whole Foods and having Amazon Fresh and all these different components. It is one of the hottest sectors of real estate right now, because just as we just just as Tyler touched on, it's difficult to find the perfect location. And 
if you can find a location, you are going to get a super good premium on your money if you're able to develop something like this. So it's going to, the demand for something like this is only going to keep going up as we have more and more food and groceries being shipped to your house. So it's a good long-term investment. The, the trick is finding a group, finding a piece of land that can actually pull it off. That's right. That's exactly it. You've got, you've got to find the right deal. And it would probably make a very good covered land play too, which you know we're all about um, is covered land plays. And you could probably get a modular uh, kind of uh, unit um, and go buy a piece of dirt that's in a nice area, break even for five years, and then sell it or redevelop it. I mean, then you'd make a lot of money. You take your you know, cold storage unit to the next site and you just do it again. Um, so you have you know, less upfront costs. But that'd be cool. Reading REITs, moving on to real estate investment trusts. These are essentially the stock market of commercial real estate. So they give us a pretty good insight to the world of commercial real estate on a minute by minute basis, unfortunately, uh, in my opinion. The great thing about commercial real estate is that it is, it's relatively illiquid, right? So you don't have somebody calling you every hour saying, hey, your real estate's gone up you know, a quarter of a percent, or hey, your real estate's dropped by 5%. Uh, which was, you know, pretty nice actually when the pandemic first hit, uh, because we had that three-day bear run in the market where it was like Wednesday record lows, Thursday record lows, Friday record lows, and we didn't notice a single thing in commercial real estate, which is pretty nice. So diving into uh, the REIT review. So this is from MultiHousingNews.com, multifamily REIT quarter one rent preview. You already matrix data and analysis on eight publicly traded apartment companies. So this is pretty cool. This is going to show how they performed in the first quarter of 2021. For January and February, portfolios centered on expensive high-wage coastal getaways, gateways, and technology hubs returned flat to negative monthly subsequent, uh, sequential rent growth and sharply negative year-over-year -year rent growth. For these portfolios, an inflection point was reached during the summer. Rents continued to decline, albeit at a slower rate. The very worst may be behind them, but a full recovery in rate will take time. I wonder if it goes further into how, how deep uh, the rates actually dropped. <coughs> Let's see. Conversely, lower-priced portfolios, primarily located in the Sun Belt and Midwest, continued to record monthly, sequential, and year-over-year -year rent growth in January and February suggesting first quarter reported results for these portfolios will continue to outpace their more expensive coastal peers. Now, if we look into, I guess, consumer behavior uh, post-pandemic, a lot of people were moving away from the coastal cities, which are typically your, your largest cities in the United States or located along the coasts. They were moving inland. Right. So it only makes sense that the Sun Belt and the Midwest are actually thriving because of that. You've got a lot of renters that are leaving New York and a lot of renters that are leaving L.A., San Francisco, and they're heading in to Chicago. They're heading into Nashville. They're heading into, you know, these all of these other cities that are much more affordable where you can work remotely. So let's see here. Um, I'm actually going to bring Andy in on this one because he is the local resident expert on REITs. So Andy, let's, I want you to dive into this high average rent and low rent growth and talk about what all of these different numbers mean for REITs. Sure thing, Tyler. So as we're seeing here from their first, from their first paragraph, it says, ranking the REITs by February average rent from highest to lowest, 
also roughly predicts year over year and sequential month rent growth. So what does that mean? So the higher the rent, average rent, actually the lower tend to be the year over year growth. So the lower your average rent, as you guys are seeing here down this chart, the better you were doing over time. And this is exactly touching on what we've been talking about before. The, I mean, think about what kind of community you're investing in when you have average rent of 2448 for whatever AB, AVB is. Whatever that AVB REIT is, that's gotta be New York or California where you're having median That's so income. high. Rents, Can you imagine right? that being your average rent is 2,500? Like, I think Nashville is at 1,400 or 1,500 for a two-bedroom apartment. I believe that's what typically it's indexed at. So, you know, almost double Nashville prices. And Nashville prices already, people here are starting to think, oh, wow, it's gone up a lot, getting expensive. I mean, <laughs> it's got two times more to go. So that's what we're seeing there. You know, if, if your average rent was really, really high, you were doing poorly. But if we go down a little bit and we look at the ones at MAA, um, scroll back up, Tyler, to cover that. Just right there at the very bottom, MAA and IRT, the lower price, the REITs that we're tracking, the lower price communities actually had growth month over month and year over year growth as well. And, and that's what we're going to continue to see. The more affordable you are, the better price appreciation you're going to have. And as the world in general starts to be more, okay, maybe cost conscious. Yes. Cost conscious. Right. And while we can work from, it's not as much work from home as work from anywhere. And what that more means is that you can open up your office in a Nashville, in an Austin, and just be, be just as productive as, being in New York, you don't have to be in these giant quote unquote centers of capital anymore. And that's going to open up a lot of these more affordable places. That's why you have Amazon investing a million dollars into a little suburb of Clarksville or up in Boise, Idaho, right? Places that you never would associate with the titans of capital. But because the world is moving in that direction, these more affordable places are going to be the ones experiencing price growth and value appreciation growth. And the ones on the top are going to be coming down. So you're going to be seeing kind of everything moving together more and more over the future. Yeah, look at this. I mean, EQR, which is the the second most expensive uh, REIT on the list in terms of the average rent. Average rent is $2,428 a month. That's really high. Year over year, they had a negative 11.5% rent growth. IRT, which is the most affordable on the list with an average rent of $1,169, had a 6.2% growth. EQR had an 11.5% decline. IRT had a 6.27% growth. That's massive. I mean, you, it, it, it's, it's almost a no-brainer as to which REITs you're going to be start investing in, right? I mean, we've been talking about micro units and, and affordability for, for a while on this show, and that's that's exactly where the country is headed. Uh, looks like uh, newly created AR, AIR. Uh, I guess this is going to dive into each individual one, which we don't need to spend too much time diving into these individually. Uh, but it looks like I mean we touched on the major points there, right? I mean you look at you look at these rents, and uh, I mean this chart just says it all. 
you know, the, the more affordable that you are, like Andy was saying, the more affordable you are, the, the better off you're going to be. Uh, it's just, it's hands down. So, you know, the, the problem is, though, it's really tough to be there, right? Like, you either have to have an older portfolio um, or you have to be kind of a, a, not necessarily a slumlord. I mean, I guess you could be a slumlord. But, or also you have to be out in the middle of this, uh, nowhere where rents are naturally going to be low because construction costs are going to be the same, right? You can't just go build something and say, hey, we're going to average $1,100 rents. I mean, in Nashville, that's really, really tough right now because of construction costs, because of land costs. You know, I think, I think you know, even in Madison, you know, these multifamily developers that we're talking to are, they're talking about a $1,500 average rent. Now, that's still, that still would put, you know, that at, at like third uh, most affordable on this list, you know, third from the bottom there. Uh, but still, I mean, that's, that's almost 50% higher than the most affordable REIT on the list. So to, just putting that in perspective, how difficult it is to actually achieve that affordable rental rate. Let's dive into office REITs, the new normal. So uh, is work from home the new normal? Um, I, I like to also say remote working when we talk about work from home because those are two very different things. They both mean working outside of the office, but remote work is not necessarily work from home. A lot of people don't want to work from home. They could uh, you know, go work in a coffee shop or they could go work out of a co-working space or whatever um, in, in addition to having an office. So a year into the pandemic, office utilization in major U.S. cities remains a fraction of pre-pandemic levels, with coastal cities facing a particularly slow recovery. Again, we're, we're getting into the coastal cities struggling. Um, you know, they're, they're experiencing negative rent growths. They're experiencing very, very low, uh, if not negative, absorption rates on their products. So, um, again, no surprise. The reopening rotation has boosted many of the urban office REITs to double-digit percentage gains this year, even after quarterly results showed punishing declines in FFO share growth in 2020. <coughs> Let's see. Dense coastal office markets with brutal transit-heavy commutes will struggle in the new, new normal. That makes sense, right? You don't want to be on a train full of other people in the middle of a pandemic that you don't know. Um, we see value in Sunbelt and suburban-focused office REITs, which are poised for a faster and more sustainable recovery. Of course they are. Andy, you want to jump in and talk about the office REIT sector uh, overview here? Yeah, Tyler. And really, the, the big thing to understand is that just like everything we've been saying, it is not like we're just because we live in Nashville, because we invest in Tennessee, we live in the South that we say the South is great, the South is the best. <laughs> it is every single article you read, every single broker you talk to, every single piece of analysis, this is where the money is going. It is going to the Sun Belt from Phoenix or and maybe as far as Las Vegas, all the all the way east to North Carolina, right? And and Georgia. So anywhere in between there is the Sun Belt, and this is where the the properties are going to be doing well, even in probably the hardest hit sector of the commercial real estate environment, the office sector, right? Where we see that the the suburban markets probably actually are going to be doing the best, and that's it's just a trend that we're going to be continuing to see, and REITs are reflecting that, as we said before, REITs reflect kind of on the ground investor sentiment 
on a day-to-day basis much more than what a property price is for a commercial real estate investment because it takes 180 days, 90 to 180 days, half a year for a property to close sometimes. And so by the time you start and by the time you finish, you know, the the world can have changed, you know, COVID could have happened. So that's why uh, we do t- try to pay attention to these REITs as much as possible to let you guys know, you know, this is this is what we want to see. Yeah, they've got some pretty interesting charts on here. Here's one on the, the back to work barometer, weekly occupancy report from Castle Access Control System data. Uh, looks like uh, ten, the 10 city average occupancy is back up to about 25% now. Looks like Dallas, Houston, Austin are near the top of the list, while San Francisco and New York are just at the bottom. Um, I mean, wow. I mean, Dallas is probably near 40% back to mm-hmm. back to normal. I mean, that's that's a pretty great sign, right? I mean, the, again, these southern states are, are kind of getting back to it. Let's see here. Round trip average commute times by city. Now, that's pretty interesting to see. Um you know, if you look at, uh, wow. So New York City, round trip average commute times, average is 72.6 minutes per day. So, I mean, your average commute time, the average person is commuting for over an hour every day. Compare that to Madison, Wisconsin, the average person is 43 minutes a day. And I would bet Madison is as high as it is is because it's it's sprawled out and you're driving 20 minutes to your office and 20 minutes back. Um, Tyler, obviously, we're pretty unhappy to see Nashville at 54.6. So, yeah, that makes I mean, me of, sad. Of course, Nashville is going to be up there. I mean, look at that. Nashville is actually worse than Austin, which, you know, which is really surprising. But, you know, I mean. Look, that's that's kind of the consequence of uh, consistently voting out transit, right? You're you're just not going to your drive times are going to go down. Um, but one thing that I will say is that if you look at the majority of these cities that are that are all in the red on this list, they're all absolutely crushing it and are some of the top markets in the world. There are studies that show uh, that I think it's like an increase of every minute. Um, I'm not even going to quote it right because I can't even remember the numbers off of it. But it's out of a, a book called Walkable Cities by Jeff Speck. They talk about how uh, – or maybe it's not by Jeff Speck. It's another one of those uh, books on, on urban real estate where every time – you know, as, as commute times increase, GDP significantly increases. So it's kind of this trade-off. It's like, you know, you look at New York. I mean, yeah, the average person is commuting 72 minutes, but also the city has – they're crushing it. It's one of the biggest GDPs in the country. So, all right, got off on a little tangent there. Uh, but, you know, office REITs as a whole um, doing pretty well. I mean, let's see, workers enjoying more flexibility, most like office time too. I mean, you know, the this chart is pretty interesting. Better work-life balance. You know, look at this pie chart. So 36% want to be fully in the office. 23% want to be mostly in the office. 24% want to be mostly remote. Only 17% want to be fully remote, which means that 83% want to be in the office at least a little bit, which makes a lot of sense, right? I mean, we talked about this all the time. There's just there's so much synergy that you get out of being in an office environment with your comrades and, and your team and working on stuff together uh, that, again, I, I just don't see 
I don't see office space going anywhere. Uh, let's see here. Office REITs stock price performance. Office REITs were pummeled early in the pandemic, pressured by these lingering questions over the long-term demand outlook as businesses become more comfortable with the expanded utilization of work from home or remote work arrangements. The fourth worst performing sector last year, office REITs ended 2020 with total returns of negative 18.44%. Compared to the negative 8% total return um, from the FTSC NARIT uh, equity REITs and the 17.6% gain by the S&P 500 ETF SPY. Um, now, to me, that says that there's a buying opportunity in office REITs. Honestly, that's all that looks like to me. Uh, from 2010 to 2020, office REITs delivered average compound annual total returns of 9.1%, trailing the 12.6% average returns from the broader REIT index. And then, oh my gosh, if you can read this chart, like, good for you. That, that, is, that is a lot of color and a lot of boxes on one page. Um, cool. So overall, I mean, look, of course, office REITs were going to take a hit in 2020. It, it only makes sense. People weren't signing any leases. People were very scared about what was going on. They didn't want to make any long-term commitments. But, you know, I think the outlook is – I think the outlook's very positive. I think the outlook is very positive. Okay, so now let's move on to this week's wild card. So, Andy, what do you have in store for us this week? Tyler, as you know, here on the Commercial Real Estate Investors Weekly Podcast, we try to bring you guys the top – most relevant news for your real estate investing journey, especially in the commercial real estate world, right? What is going on and what are the cool things, the things that you guys need to know so that you can be more informed and make better investments? Well, one of the biggest announcements that came out last week is obviously, as we see Joe Biden's head here, his giant $2 trillion infrastructure bill, right? So he just proposed, Joe Biden just proposed this massive infrastructure bill. And to put this into perspective, the past couple times that anyone has passed or even tried to propose an infrastructure bill, those are typically in the $500, $600 billion range. So this is three to four times bigger than anything that we've really ever seen in the United States since, uh, you know, we built out the national highway system. So if this plan were to go through it would have probably a similar effect to when we built out the national highway system. And obviously, as real estate investors, we want to know how do things like transit and infrastructure affect the different cities that we can go to, where we can make money, how our investments are going to perform. So we wanted to break this down a little bit for you to say, what effect will this infrastructure plan have on the real estate market? So. As we see here, the plan includes everything from road repairs, electric vehicle stations, to public school upgrades and training for the clean energy workforce. So for transportation infrastructure, just, just in the roads, railways and bridges itself, we're spending $174 billion on electric vehicles with 500,000 electric vehicle charging stations, right? Using EVs and bus fleets replacing the federal government's fleet of decent transit vehicles with electric vehicles. So that alone, I mean, obviously, if you're in the if you're on the Tesla train or in the other electric vehicle train, that's going to make you very happy, right? That there's going to be a lot of electric vehicles coming onto the market. And really, you know, the importance of 
more electric vehicles coming onto the market is not only that it's going to be better for the environment, but really it's that it's going to mean that we have a consistent long-term investment into transportation, into these road systems, into making sure that we still have, you know, we're, and we're going to be keeping up the, you know, the, the current, the current world we live in is based around the car, right? A lot. And that's how our cities are built, for better or for worse. Over the last 50, 60 years, we've built our cities, we've built our infrastructure around the car. So with us greening that environment, bringing in and producing electric vehicles, it's still going to allow these car-based transportation sites to continue and thrive, right? So whether or not that's necessarily good or bad, and whether or not you like suburban or more urban developments, you know, that's a whole nother debate, but it is going to allow these suburban environments to survive right where we're spending $115 billion on roads and bridges, especially the ones in need of repair. And it's going to have $85 billion of modernizing transit systems and $80 billion of a backlog, backlog of Amtrak repairs, as well as improvements in route expansion, which I will get to in just a second. So obviously you guys see here a huge amount of making sure our infrastructure is gonna stand up to the task. And I really wanna highlight this one here, infrastructure resiliency to withstand climate-related disasters. We all saw what happened in February in Texas and a lot of, across a lot of the South. We had massive freezing weather, storms that caused an incredible amount of snow, snow that we had never seen probably for years and decades, right? Where we had in Texas, you know, pipes bursting all over the place because they froze, where you had power literally shut off, cities like Austin and Dallas being under boil water advisories because literally their pipes froze in the ground and they couldn't even deliver water, clean water to your homes. Those things are gonna happen more and more. And so to have built in this money, right? $50 billion to prevent huge storms like that from wiping out our investments, that's great, right? As real estate investors, we want to mitigate risk, climate risk, and these huge storms that could freeze all your pipes. And if you freeze all your pipes and your apartment building and your pipes burst and your tenants are flooded and then people have to move out and you're not renting them out, you're going to lose money. That's a big deal, right? That's a big deal. And so I'm very happy to see that potentially a lot of this money is going to be spent to allow those investments to be protected over the long run. And obviously, we're upgrading airports. Food, uh, road safety and connecting neighborhoods historically cut off by investments. These are all very good things as well. And I really want to touch on this here, quality of life at home, $650 billion. We're going to spend $213 billion potentially to build, preserve, and retrofit more than 2 million affordable homes and 500,000 homes for low and middle income owners and $100 billion to clean drinking water, replacement of all lead pipes and service lines, which, you know, is pretty sad that we still have lead pipes in places like Flint, Michigan, right? That, you know, kids are literally drinking from lead water. But that being said, is these places that have traditionally been forgotten, right? These places that are underserved, underutilized, if this infrastructure comes in to build them up, what have we been saying? That people are looking for the more affordable places to invest your money across America, the affordable places where you can have a decent quality of life, those are the places where your investments are going to be doing really well.
So you have these places that maybe had lead pipes that are now going to be replaced, or you were cut off by transit, and now your bridges and roads are going to be fixed. These places that historically have been left behind, there's going to be, if this plan passes, a lot of opportunity there to, you know, really get in there, get opportunities for your price appreciation to grow because people are going to now all of a sudden want to be there because, again, as we're saying, affordability is one of the most important things. And, you know, if we're talking about connecting places that haven't been connected in the past, let's look at what Amtrak was saying. So Amtrak, for those who aren't in the Northeast, right, Amtrak is this quasi-governmental service that is essentially Americans' track, right? America's railway, passenger railway system. Now, we don't have any of that in Nashville. I believe the last time Amtrak ran in Nashville was like in the 80s. I think they shut it down. So they're going to expand it to these cities like Las Vegas, Nashville, Phoenix, where historically there has not been a lot of passenger rail. And if we do that, see Las Vegas, Nashville, Columbus, Ohio, and Phoenix, if they do that, we're going to have a lot more ability for people to move in, transport between these two different, between the different cities. You know, you're going to see a lot of growth through the ability to access these cities. And, you know, here's the big map. It's kind of blurry because I had to blow this up here. But all these light blue areas are areas where there's no service currently. And I really want to highlight this map here on the Nashville market. Like if we added an Amtrak service from Nashville to Chattanooga to Atlanta to Macon, you know, all the way down to, I'm not sure what, what is even down here. Uh, what, what is that city on the corner there? It's not showing me. But we're, we're adding Montgomery, Auburn to Atlanta too, Birmingham to all the way up here to Asheville and Charlotte, right? If we add all of this transit and passenger rail here, it's going to be huge for the growth and development of the Southeast because, you know, people in the Northeast and people in the South, we don't realize how they do it. Some people in the Northeast, you know, you're going to live in Massachusetts and you transport and you, you know, take the train to New York, right? The reason why Amtrak is, is maybe a part of this plan is that Joe Biden used to, when he lived in Delaware, he would literally take the train from Delaware to Washington, D.C. for several hours every day because it was easy for him to move around. Talk about work from home and remote work flexibility. If I can all of a sudden get from Nashville to Atlanta in three hours on a passenger train, right, that's going to open up way, way more business opportunities for my company. I can attract way more talent, right? So that's the type of stuff that we want to be looking for. And hopefully it's going to happen as well as the fact that, you know, with all this investments in $213 billion of low and middle income homeowners, right? Focusing on the people who are underserved, focusing on the areas that haven't had a lot of investment. These areas are going to, as I said before, the most expensive areas are coming down. The more affordable areas are coming up. And as we have, if we have $200 billion more into these areas, we're going to see a lot of price growth there as well. So if you guys, as we've said before, can focus on places that maybe have been traditionally overlooked, that people that you know it's going to be growing into the future, but it hasn't quite made it there yet, 
that is where the opportunity in real estate is made. When you can have a vision, you know what's coming down the pipeline, you know, hey, maybe this bridge in this neighborhood is going to be rebuilt from this plan. What is that going to do? That's going to allow much more access, more people, right? More people to come in, going to drive the prices up. It's going to create equity, create value for you, you and the community. And, you know, it's going to be a good investment. So that is really the long and short of the infrastructure bill that Biden passed and how it potentially can affect the real estate housing, the real estate market, commercial real estate market, and the housing market. So hopefully you guys took something away from that little breakdown there. But really, Tyler, I think we're going to be seeing if this gets passed. And obviously there's a lot of stuff that has to go through the political process if this gets passed. If this gets passed, it's going to make a huge deal for real estate investors. So real estate investors really need to be on top of what potential investments, roads, bridges, railway services could potentially you know, really bring a lot of value to their future investments. Yeah, you know, it's pretty interesting, Andy, to think about how developed uh, the United States is as a country compared to the rest of the world. And we're one of the few developed countries that doesn't have a super sophisticated uh, light rail system that connects cities. I mean, you look at Japan, they've got the, one of the best in the world. You look at um, you look at all of Europe. I mean, you can go from, you know, London to, you know, I don't know, Italy and and beyond and just by jumping on trains. I mean, it's uh, it's something that the United States has really needed for quite some time. We moved away from it when we started, you know, really promoting cars and suburban living. Andy, what do you think are the, is the likelihood of that actually happening? So as it stands, I think the likelihood of this bill passing as it stands is close to zero, uh, <laughs> mostly because of course, mostly because even if the Democrats wanted to use a political process known as reconciliation, which means they only need 50 votes, which they have in the Senate, they do have 50 votes plus the tiebreaker vote of Kamala Harris to get it. They don't even have all of their caucus on board. You have moderates in politics like Joe Manchin or Kirsten Sinema who don't want to necessarily get on board with this plan as it sits. So as it currently sits in this current form, it's it's you know 99% chance not going to pass. That being said, when we looked at the COVID-19 bill for for you know that we just passed, right? Another two trillion dollar bill. Joe Manchin made a big stink about, oh, it needs to be bipartisan. At the end of the day, the only thing he changed, and he did it for his brand, was to cut the unemployment benefits from 400 bucks a week to 300 bucks a week. And then he sold that as a big win, but really most of the other stuff in the bill stayed the same. I think you're gonna be somewhere kind of in, in the middle of that, of 25% of, um, change, perhaps, and 100% change. Uh, it, so. That's, I think, where we're going to be. It's going to take us a few months of debate and bickering and stuff to get there. But I do think that the Democrats, at the end of the day, they're going to pass something pretty substantial. And even if it's not $2 trillion, a trillion dollars would still be a lot of money into these projects. Yeah, it'd be pretty remarkable to see something like that get passed. We need it pretty badly. Thank you, Andy.
All right. Well, that is it uh, for this week's Commercial Real Estate Investor Weekly Update. Thank you guys for joining us live and asking your questions. As always, we are doing these Mondays at 5.30 p.m. Central Standard Time. Feel free to join and jump in on the conversation. Feel free to ask us questions about what is going on in the world of commercial real estate. I'm happy to volley back and forth with you as always. If, you're, if you are watching on the YouTube channel, don't forget to like and subscribe so that you get notified every time we are going live. If you're listening on the podcast, don't forget to rate and review so that we can continue bringing this information to more people each week. And we will see you next time.